Thank you for tuning into Radio Never Apart. I'm your host, Jordan Kane. Welcome back, returning listeners, and if you're listening for the first time, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Radio Never Apart is an interview feature started at the beginning of 2020, which launches monthly as part of the Never Apart online magazine. I have interviewed some incredible people in various aspects of nightlife and nightlife culture across North America, including performers, DJs, drag performers, promoters, and so many more. In this episode, I'm speaking with Berlin-based DJ Dickie Doo. Dickie was the first DJ I ever got to know well when I first dipped my toes into nightlife over 20 years ago in Vancouver, Canada. Dickie has been based in Berlin since 2010, and in this episode, you'll hear about how he found his way into after-hours clubs in full punk looks at the age of only 14. We also talk about his time as a DJ in the 1990s when electronic music culture was really exploding. I've actually really wanted to interview you for a long time, and it's not to say there was any reason why we weren't able to make it happen, but here we are now. We've known each other for... happy to be here. (laughs) We've known each other for many, many, many years. Absolutely. <laughs> Through all of it. I'm gonna share, I'm gonna share one story. So I might still have it somewhere in my possession. I've moved quite a few times since then, but you gave me a mixtape. I think on perhaps one of my very first nights out ever in Vancouver. That was one of my like most treasured possessions, like an audio cassette, Richard that you just gifted me (laughs) that's how it used to be audio because it's girl djs made bank off those things (laughs) so let's let's dial it back so i met you when i first moved to vancouver in 1999 and i believe it was when i had officially officially moved to vancouver and i started going out right away i mean i wasn't 19 i started going to clubs and after hours immediately and i don't remember how i first ever heard about you but i knew you as basically one of like i mean you were the coolest dj in vancouver at the time because you had your toe in a lot of different sort of places right you were djing at just such a such a variety i guess it would have been that summer of 99 around pride season because you were DJing so many events and so many parties and stuff so I'm sure it was during that time period that that we first crossed paths I would have gone out to something that you were playing at yeah I think actually I remember uh the first I think you guys showed up like when it was lava lounge but even prior to that I was going out even prior to that to the world when the world first opened in the new space which was on Granville Street the world after hours had moved it had been on Seymour in a very dodgy location then it moved to Granville Street to a sort of newer location and that was where we first started going out really consistently because we weren't we weren't legal age but I don't remember them IDing at that new world and you were teaching there right from the beginning yeah I mean technically the world didn't have like an age uh because I think it was 16 maybe because there was no liquor Right. So I, mean, technically, I, think I think legally you could get into an after hours if you're 16. I'm pretty sure. So you can stay up and party all night until the sun comes up because they're not serving alcohol. So Lord knows I mean, if your parents know where you are. But. The first clubs I was going to when I was literally 14 in junior high school was an after hours club. And it was the same thing. I mean, tech, legally, I was allowed to be in there even though I did get arrested there, but we'll talk about that later. Oh my gosh, okay. So DJ Dickie Do, we're speaking from Berlin. You're now home, but we met in Vancouver, Canada. Take Mm -hmm. listeners back to the very beginning of your story. Wow, the beginning of, I read a lot of uh, 
nonfiction uh, biographies and autobiographies. So I'll skip over the, the first few chapters because they're always so boring. Um, to condense things, it's like, yeah, my dad is German. My mother's Canadian. They hooked up when my mom was like 15. My dad was like 18 in Edmonton because my dad skipped the draft here in Germany and disappeared to Canada. Wow. Um, ended up in Edmonton of all places and met my mother. Um, so yeah, they got pregnant, they got married, they moved back to Germany. Um, so I actually did grow up in Germany until I was, uh, like in elementary school wow. and then we moved back to Canada to Edmonton and, um, my grandma and my mom's, a large part of my mom's family lived in Vancouver. And so from the time that I was like, you know, elementary school through high school, I was spending a lot of time, summer holidays and whatnot in Vancouver and living in Edmonton, of course, the older I got, the more I really detested Edmonton. <laughs> I just, I just knew this wasn't the place for me. I mean, when I was like, between I think grade six and seven, I mean, in Canada, as we know, we changed schools after elementary school going into junior high school. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that kind of transition uh those like going into grade seven I started like I mean I was always really into music I always played drums my parents had me like in drum lessons and um as a child like super obsessed by kiss and like disco music because my parents listened to a lot of disco and I mean my parents are very young so our house was a real party house Wow. Um, and like every weekend my mom has seven younger brothers and sisters and it was just constant party 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 it's always wow. loud house, loud music, lots of dancing and <laughs> drinking and disco and whatnot. And so, yeah, by the time I was going into grade seven, I am playing drums and like, you know, getting older. I really and uh, buying a lot of music magazines. Um, that's like obviously when punk rock was kind of happening. I was like a couple years late to the party because obviously it was a big thing in Europe, not so much in Edmonton. <laughs> Um, and then going into grade seven, there was one summer where my dad, who worked in the oil business, who's very, you know, redneck business, um, he had like an oil parts machinery shop slash warehouse thing that he worked at that I always detested going to because it was so disgusting, dirty and cold and just not where I ever wanted to be. But one year he hired these two young British guys. I don't know why they were in Edmonton, what they were doing in Edmonton, but they were both punk rockers and they're actually the first uh, real punk rockers I'd ever seen or met. And that really changed my life because we got to know these guys a little bit. They introduced me to a, a Sex Pistols album and all this type of thing, which I already had like a little bit of interest in the stuff from the magazines and that just sealed the deal. And so grade seven into grade eight, I just became like a punk priestess. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, everything changed. It was like my, I, my look and, you know, my friends and I mean, being sent home from gym class because I refused to wash my hair. And they were saying that we were, because we were taking wrestling, my hair could poke someone's eye out. <laughs> it was like spikes, right? It, you, were you were styling this like full out spikes and mohawk. For sure. and yeah. <laughs> I've and seen so photos. Whole, That's why I'm clarifying because I've seen the Suburban pictures, but... Edmonton, suburban Edmonton. And I was, I mean, at that point, I was kind of funny because I was lucky enough to meet a bunch of kids who are older than me. So I was like grade seven at that point, And I met a bunch of kids who were in high school. And so they were like a good four years older than me. And they were all... Um, not so much punk rock, but like in that direction, more like electronic, like you know, new romantic and okay. new wave and this type of stuff. And I mean, these people just became like my friends. And I mean, there's a famous punk band from Edmonton, SNFU. Like Edmonton yeah. actually had a, did have a great scene at that point. And it was like, I think just because it was such a weird, cold redneck city that the extremes, you always hear about extremes in these types of places. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, so some of these guys that I met back then, it's like, you know, two of them, these brothers, the Huss brothers, Darren and Stephen Huss, have become you know, years ago, decades ago, huge stars in Germany and in Europe with a synthwave band, Psyche. Wow. Um, the third guy in Psyche was Dwayne, who played in Skinny Puppy afterwards. Yeah, I remember um, Skinny Puppy, there was some connection, right? I'm not sure if they were from Edmonton or... 
Well, they were from Vancouver. And so, right. I mean, you know, this, but I mean, like these high school kids I met, this guy, Dwayne, who ended up in Skinny Puppy was one of them. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was just this kind of crazy scene. Um, and yeah, then it, I think it was the summer of grade eight going into grade nine. My dad was freaking out because he did not like this new direction I was going into, even though I was a really nice kid. I looked wild and maybe if he didn't know me seemed wild, but I was not actually wild. But my dad hated the way I looked. And so he thought it would be a great idea to send me to stay for the summer in Frankfurt in Germany with my grandma in Germany for two months. And I think he really thought that by sending me there that she would straighten me out and I would come back being like as you know church choir singer or something. And anyways, wrong place to send me at that point in my life because I got to Frankfurt and it was like punk rock extravaganza. And I spent my entire summer hanging out with like street punks on the streets, like buying all these records and learning all this more about more music. And uh, my grandma was super cool. Like she basically would take me shopping and buy me all these punk rock clothes and let me dye my hair purple for the first time. So when I came back to Edmonton, my parents had a heart attack. They were just like, what? Like they found my grandma were like, what have you done? And I mean, that was the end of, you know, I mean, so that's great. Like what, going into grade eight. So I would have been 14 now coming back. Um, now again, like I told you, I had these older friends. And so they were in high school and they were all starting to go to clubs and stuff. And um, I was much younger. Uh, and there was an after hours club that had just opened in Germany called Krieg which obviously means war in German. And um, also one of these high school dudes that was a friend of all these friends of mine had just moved to Edmonton from London and was the DJ at this place. And so he came from, you know, at this point it's like, so I'm punk rock, but then I'm like hey, starting to hang out in clubs and hearing club music. And at that point it was you know, lots of new romantic stuff and like you know, divine, like native mm. love and like what, I would guess around 82, 83. And so it was like post-disco, post-punk, lots of exciting music happening. And so, yeah, I started hanging out at this um, After Hours Club. And where and in Edmonton, parents, where in Edmonton was this? I'm trying to even imagine, because I've spent a lot of time in Edmonton. Both my parents are from there. I mean, there. it was not so far from, I mean, I don't know if you ever were at the Roost in Edmonton. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it was not far from there. It was like just a little bit, closer to Jasper Avenue. It was like this weird, like in Edmonton at the time, there was a couple of hair salons where it was completely like John Waters, like hair hopper, like new romantic hair hoppers. And uh, so between these two hair salons, a couple of clothing stores, one was called Incognito. And um, the other one was in this after hours called Krieg. And so the clothing store would be open, you know, like a clothing shop, would be hours wise and then on the weekends fridays and saturdays uh this after hours of course everything was black and white tiled floors and whatnot back then wow. um, and so yeah we started going to this after hours club and it was so i would have been 14 almost 15 and my parents at this point had bought a cabin and so they were leaving almost every weekend to go to this cabin. And at that point in my life, I really hated nature. <laughs> I did not had zero interest in going to this stupid cabin. And so I was like, managed to talk them into just letting, I, I'm old enough to just stay by myself on the weekends. Like you guys enjoy the cabin. And so they started going to the cabin, taking my little brother and leaving me alone. And I would go to this after hours club with my older friends. Um, so coming, like I said, this is like, I came back from Germany, it would have been like the end of August of that year. Going into September, October, I'm hanging out at this after hours club. While I was in Germany, I had bought all these like studded wristbands and belts and things that you can get, you can buy them in Edmonton. Yeah. And so this one night, these police came into this after hours bar doing like a, I guess a routine check. And they actually arrested me for being in possession of what they called illegal weapons. Wow. And so my belts and wristbands were considered illegal weapons. And they, 
I mean, at this point in my life also, I was like, you know, obsessed by the plasmatics and things like this. Mm-hmm. And so I had like a dog collar on that I had put like, you know, two in, two like one and a half inch like nails through it and like this type of thing. And what, like completely uh, copying, you know, Wendy O. Williams look at the time, Mohawk. Mm-hmm. And, but like, again, like I said, I really was a nice kid. And um, like, I wasn't dr- doing drugs or drinking or any of that stuff. I was just out. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I get arrested this night. They take me out of the club in handcuffs. They put me in the back of the cop car and they're driving me to the station. And like, while they're driving me to the station, they were talking about like how they were talking as if I wasn't there. And so like one was saying to the other, like, can you believe this freak? Like this, this fag, like if I had a kid like this, I would kill it. Like all this stuff. I meanwhile, like, like, with my dog collar because they didn't handcuff me to sit in the seat, the back seat. And so I'm like pushing the nails out of the, thinking I'm in trouble here. And like, oh, maybe they haven't noticed the dog collar with the two inch nails. And so I'm like poking the nails out on the, like out onto the seat, like the floor of the back, like as if they won't notice when I put it back on, there's no nails in it. Anyway, they get me to the station and it was this huge deal. And all my friends came rushing to the station. Uh, they put me in some holding room that was behind like a desk where people would check in, I guess. And um, so my friends called my aunt who was a lesbian bartender at the roost. And we're like, Richard's been arrested and he's, they're holding him, they're charged. My, still to this day, one of my best friends, Karen was with me. They were like trying to, they're threatening all these older friends of mine, they were gonna charge them with contributing to the delinquency of a juvenile. And um, yeah, and so, I mean, my aunt came to the station, my friends were all the station. They had, they were, the police told my aunt and all these people, no, they had already sent me to juvie. Uh, but there was like a, wow. in this room, they were holding me there. It's like, you know, like in schools, there's like a tall rectangular window in the door. Yeah. There was this type of window in the door. I just happened to like get up to look out the window. My aunt saw me. And she's <laughs> like, he's there. Like he's there. Anyways, they let me out. And of course my parents came home from the lake and how, so this is where it gets crazy. This happened, I think on a Friday night, the Saturday afternoon. Me and my friends called this guy, Eddie Keene, who wrote for the Edmonton Sun. We told him the whole story. He was like a real freedom fighter standing up for the small man. You know? <laughs> so Monday morning, my parents come back from the lake Sunday night. We tell them what's happened. They're freaking out. Monday morning, the newspaper comes out. And there's my story. <laughs> I get, get to school, grade eight. I walk into my junior high school where two thirds of the school thought I was already a complete freak. The other third loved me. And it's actually playing. They would play the radio before, like when people were filing into the scoops over the intercoms uh, before the day started. And it, I could actually hear them talking about me on the radio like as I'm walking into the school. I'm just like, Ugh. anyway, the whole thing became this whole sensation. Um, and like to the point where like the, the headline of the newspaper article was dangerous to be different. This okay. local new wave band wrote a song called Dangerous to be Different, and it became like this kind of like Edmonton, like kind of Billy Jean. <laughs> the whole wow. thing's so crazy. Anyways, about a month later, these cops ended up coming to my house. They brought back all my possessions, my studded weapons. They gave them all back to me. Obviously, they're really embarrassed by the whole spectacle of the media as a part of it, I think, and apologized for wow. what they had, how they had treated me and said that they actually, because of the sizes of the studs on the things that I had, they were not above the legal limit. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so that was kind of like my first foray into some sort of infamy. Yeah. At the time, I was so androgynous because I wore so much makeup as well. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, the whole thing was just kind of funny. I mean, growing up in Edmonton in those times, like I said, there was like a real cute scene and stuff, but I mean, the city itself was very pickup truck. And I mean, I think I got through a lot of it because I would just take the bus everywhere, of course, all the time. And uh, I think most people just thought I was a girl. Um, and so they left me alone. Yeah, I mean, at least, at least there's that. And that persists to this day. I mean, Alberta... I I sort of try to describe to people who don't necessarily know the layout of Canada. It's like the Midwest. 
it's sort of cowboy country to this day it's still the same so it's hard to fathom you know 30 plus years ago um we didn't even I have... mean to be honest with you I think maybe in some ways it was probably I mean in some ways it was obviously worse but in some ways it was also probably better because people were simpler and didn't have the internet telling them who they should hate <laughs> well, and Edmonton, Edmonton does have at least some, you know, arts and culture, and there was a little bit of nightlife. I mean, there'd been a club called Flashback that was a famous, like, discotheque, right, yeah. in the 70s I mean, that was probably 80s. the most famous disco in Canada yeah. in the 80s. I mean, that's actually the first club I ever went to, uh, like, the first real club. Um, and that's also, I think I was probably, like, 15, 16, and, like, my one... He's like my mom's youngest brother. It's my cool uncle. And so, I mean, as you know, the within those few years, it's like hanging out more and more with these people from my older high school friends. And then they kind of overlapped meeting the people we did in these after hours clubs to like people again, a few more years older. And so like everyone, I'm 15, I'm hanging out. The average age of the people I'm hanging out with is 20 to 23. And so these people were all going to clubs. I mean, so flashback, I mean, there was a night where we were at a party, a house party, and everyone was going to flashback. And they were like, come on, come on, we can get you in, we can get you in. So they completely disguised me as like a for sure girl. Um, they put like a, a big bulky sweater on me and like a like big baggy skirt and like a hat, like kind of like, you know, kind of like a boy George Bananarama style. Okay. And uh, I got in and I was there for about 20 minutes. And then somebody came up to me and asked me to come with them. And they took me into this office where the owner actually was of Flashbacks. I think his name was John Reed, maybe. He was sitting behind the desk and there are two other people in the office. I am scared shitless because uh, it's the first actual club I've ever been in in my life. And this man looking at me from across the desk says, how did you get in here? And I was just like, uh. he was like, how old are you? And I said, uh, 18 and he was like no how old are you and I said 16 and he was like I find that hard to believe he said you have to leave like now I'm like so they escorted me out and the whole thing I was like so terrified so that was my quick first like <laughs> well it's it's sounding very reminiscent of the first time that I ever went to celebrities in Vancouver and it was pre-renovation so mm. I went on a fake ID with my best friend Preston who you know very well and I've spoken about this night in another interview somewhere but it was just this fascinating um I don't know it was this like confluence of people who are in from out of town in this crazy club drag um, this whole posse of them. I think they ended up being from like Denver, Colorado or something. And there was uh, Paul, who's a hairdresser in Vancouver, you and I both known for many years yeah. in his giant club kid, plat you know, eight inch platform yeah. shoes and Cotton and Luca and meeting you. And I mean, not old celebrities in its previous form where it was all a little bit dilapidated and kind of grungy and just um you know and the song which may have been the first time I ever heard it played and if not it stands out so crystal clear in my mind was was Maloko sing it back and okay it was one of those magical moments in your life I mean I was I was not 15 I was 18 but uh I mean, it's just, you just know, this is a world that like you want to be a part of. I was like. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> at that point I knew. I mean, at that point, yeah, that it's like going into high school. It's like, again, you know, again, being more influenced with clubs, getting out of more, less punk. I mean, I still look super wild and, and like in high school, full makeup to school. And like huge blonde hair. And I mean, all the girls loved me. And I mean, what saved me in high school is like all the jocks and all the, you know, the people in high school, I mean, all their girlfriends loved being around me because I was all about makeup. Mm. And um, so they would all leave me alone because they knew that if they hassled me, that the, gir the girls that they were after would not be interested. Put in up with them, yeah. It was really funny. But I mean, yeah, in high school, my best friend in high school and I, it was like, that's when we were, what, 16 going into high school. So at that point, we really started clubbing. I mean, at the Roost, there was a, where my aunt was the bartender, was mm -hmm. the first uh, club we started like frequenting. And I mean, it was, funnily enough, we went on the 
nights that we would go on Friday ladies night and I read my aunt bartending there the first time she saw me there she's like what the fuck are you doing here you know I could get fired and I, we're just like chill chill like you know it's so funny I mean it took I think of probably a good six to eight weeks at that point where then they started find, finding out and then I was told I wasn't allowed to come on Friday night you know let's be real too you're 18 I mean you're just getting oh, wow. away with whatever you can old. it's yeah, like first 16. time in a club yeah we're thinking at this point like we're not thinking that these are going to be people we're going to be around constantly for the next years even though they did end up to be most of them because Edmonton is a small place yeah um so yeah adventures so <laughs> when when did you move to Vancouver when did that happen um well as soon as I graduated from high school it was like at that point I was like from 16 to 18 through grades uh, 10, 11, 12, I got fake ID and we were just clubbing every weekend. I'd met my first boyfriend um, and I was hardly at home. I was staying at his place all the time. I'd actually, I, I actually dropped out of school halfway through grade 11 and lied about it. I pretended I was still going and I even forged a report card. <laughs> what, Richard, that's impressive. I'm like, still going. And um, this one morning, I'm like, I had, I, at that point, I got a full-time job at the Chateau. Also, oh, where I could, you know, wear my full makeup and, you know, buy all the clothes that I wanted to. So I'm working full-time at the Chateau. Always worried because the office tower that my mom worked in was right next door to the tower that the mall was in. Um, there was a couple of times I ran into my mom. She's like, what are you doing? Like, shouldn't you be at school? And I was like, they really needed someone today. <laughs> And Le Chateau, for people who don't know it, Le Chateau is sort of like, it's a, it was a hip Canadian clothing brand. A lot of oh, it was sort of it was trickle like... down of, you know, trendy kind of stuff. But it was, it Absolutely. was, it was a cool place to work, I can imagine. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Every, like, at that point, like, this is the 80s. So like anybody who was like, like androgynous, that would now, you know, be referred to as non-binary, like transsexual, uh punk rockers like everyone worked at the chateau everybody hmm. um and i mean to the point where even like the suburban shopping centers that had the chateaus had like those types of people working in them i mean it was really really and i mean the clothing at the time they were just like you know ripping off like london new romantic clothing and this type of thing i mean it it was very cool for the day yeah for sure for Canada I mean it was it was the, maybe a decent place to sort of aspire to be right if you're in like the middle of Absolutely. nowhere it's yeah yeah so yeah I mean you know it was yeah I, one, one morning my mom was I was off and my mom was apparently sick my room was in the basement so I basically had like my separate apartment downstairs and I could hear my mom on the phone she was I could just hear her scream what do you mean and so she was like, Richard, and I came, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Because now, I mean, I have not been in school now for at least like six months and faked a report card and everything else. And so she's like, well, this was your school. And they're saying that you haven't been to school since like last fall. We're in spring now. And I, and I was just like, lie to the end. I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> She was like, well, get in the car because we're going there right now. So we drive to the school. I'm sitting there. I'm lying to the bitter end to my mom. And she is like, so there is like steam pouring from her ears. And my mom was cool, but she, this was just a breaking point. And so, yeah, she came out of the school and she looked at me and she was like, if you're going to continue living at home, you are getting a full-time job and you are paying rent starting immediately. And I was wow. like, well, I already do have a full-time job. And so I'll start paying rent. <laughs> so yeah, anyways, you know, that was that. I mean, not long later, this boyfriend that I'd had, um, he, we, him and I went to Vancouver a couple of times. And of course, yeah, Vancouver was like much, so it seemed like New York compared to Edmonton. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I guess I was what, 17 at this point. He said he was going to move to Vancouver and I was like, I am too. And um, yeah, told my parents, my parents had split up at that point. Uh, my mom was living, my mom actually became a lesbian, her lover moved in with us, and so it was my mom and her girlfriend and my younger brother, 
And at that point, I was like, yeah, I'm moving to Vancouver. And they were like, fine. And my dad drove me. We packed up like my drums and all my records, my turntables. And, um, and uh, he drove me out to Vancouver and I moved to Vancouver. And uh, yes, I got to Vancouver when I was like 18 and I just kind of like didn't really do much. I worked at a job, this stupid job in a mall at that point. I was, well, at that point I was working at Le Chateau. Then I couldn't get a job at Le Chateau in Vancouver because they didn't have any openings. So I just kind of ended up doing random jobs. I worked at some secondhand shops and I lived with my uncle in the beginning who was a construction worker. He owned like a construction mm -hmm. company. And I would work with him sometimes. And I actually just kind of ended up just like partying and going to clubs every night of the week. In Vancouver back then, there was literally, there was so many gay clubs at that point, probably at least 10. Um, and so, and it was, you know, around the time that house music was just starting, Acid House was big mm -hmm. in the UK. Yeah, so what and, decade, um, what, or like what year would this have been or what, what year roughly? This would be around like 87. Okay. I don't think and, I realized um, you'd have been in Vancouver that early. I, I think in my in my mind, I mean, because I knew more so that you were DJing into the 90s. I didn't realize you'd been there since then. So what yeah, were some I of mean, the I clubs? I didn't start DJing until 92 was when I started DJing like professionally. I mean, at that point, okay. when I was 16, I bought one of the older guys that I'd worked with at Le Chateau. He had true turntables and a mixer. And that was the first time I'd you know, ever really seen that setup. And it's also, like I said, when we first started going to clubs, and I mean, that club in Edmonton, Flashback, actually, had, and I always bought a ton of records, um, but uh, like Flashbacks actually had a record store in the club and really? people would hear the, got the DJ playing, of course, music that no, you know, you'd only hear in clubs. <clears throat> and then they would like run to the record shop and be like, what is this? And they'd point it out on the wall and you'd assemble your records for the night and they'd put them in a bag, you'd pay for them, then you'd pick them up at the coat check when you'd leave. What? Wow. What an incredible business model. That's like so fascinating. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. And the record shop had people hanging out in it. And I mean, it was amazing. Uh, then moving to Vancouver, I had at that point bought like a mixer from Radio Shack, which was what everybody bought back then. And two turntables, like not even DJ turntables. And um, so I was like at that point is when I started like making tapes um, and like in Vancouver, you know, just going out every night and like making tapes for all my friends and um, like Graceland and the Gandhi Dancer were places that we were hanging out mostly. And that kind of led into like the 90s, the early 90s thing where it was like, I, so many people had my tapes and mm -hmm. people would complain because you go to, at that point, celebrities started to be more the club. And so we started going to celebrities and so many people were telling like Carl, the manager at that point, like you should, the music here sucks. And you guys, like so many people just randomly would be like, you should hire Richard, you should hire Richard. And mm -hmm. Finally, it was like one night he was like, so I, people keep telling me that I should hire you to DJ. I had never DJed in a club before. And I was just like, okay. And he was like, so why don't you come and try out? And I was like, okay. I mean, I went there and tried out. I, the booth at that point, like most DJ booths were like removed from the room. It was mm -hmm. upstairs in a corner in its own room and had speakers inside the monitors that were what you, the people downstairs on the dance floor were hearing. I didn't even know how to turn them on. And it's like, so it's like, I knew how to use turntables. I had no idea what these monitor business was. So I'm like tr doing my tryout for Carl and I'm trying to go off ear from the music downstairs on the dance floor, funneling up and through this doorway. And I don't think he was even paying attention because I mean, clearly the mixing would not have been good being not able to hear properly. And after like 20 minutes of 30 minutes, he's like, yeah, cool. Like, what do you want to start with Thursdays for now? I can't give you a weekend slot yet. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably thinking to yourself, I guess I have some stuff to figure out before I'm actually- I mean, at that point when I'm working these- Right. I mean, so of course, then it was like, okay, well, come and hang out with one of the DJs that works here and he'll just take you around the equipment and blah, blah, blah. I mean, of course, it wasn't hard to figure out. And I mean, once I sat with the guys for one or two nights, it was like, okay, fine. So, I mean, that's how I, that started. So, yeah, 1992 at Celebrities. And that was like my first gig. And things just moved super fast from then. It was like I had Thursday nights at first. And then all of a sudden it was Friday nights. And then it was like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then I think it was because I was like so young and just so like really 
like well and you have musical taste i mean you have exceptional musical taste you always have you've introduced me to so much amazing music and i just think that 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 is a gift the likes of which doesn't really it's it's getting rarer and rarer to me i think because we're we just hear so much more of the same stuff coming at us from all angles so it actually is more difficult now to really like navigate and be very like specific about your your musical taste um so i mean yeah, I, feel... I hear this argument often you know i mean like I, somebody wrote the other day something about like the most options for music ever and the least attention span yeah and i said well that those two things are hand in hand like that's why yeah. I mean, if you have uh, McDonald's on every corner, at some point, people are going to get tired of hamburgers. Yeah. Um, and I think with music, too. I mean, music has become so disposable. And uh, I mean, it's free. There's no value in it. For sure. Um, for sure. Well, and so I think and there yet, is still a lot of great music out there, but it's certainly, uh, you know, it's not what's being showcased. Well, and I think too, and you know, I wrote about this in the article that I wrote about Clark Render, who I lived with in New York. I mean, Clark was someone who, who had, who had the kind of musical taste that like was really developed in a different decade, uh, and it was so specific and sort of niche. But then that was really sort of educating you and educating your ear and educating your taste level. And a lot of it was, you know, built because you filtered out so much of the sort of crap that was out there um so and and i think that that can really educate and inform you if you're consciously developing it but it just takes a lot more work now oh yeah absolutely more work i mean the amount of hours that i spend going through websites to try and find new music is i mean you can't even compare it with going into a record shop once or twice a week. Yeah. There's so much. I mean, but also there's so much music. I mean, like I said, I mean, I think those sites like Beatport and Trackstars are getting like a thousand tracks a day or something. Oh my gosh. I mean, Oof. you know, back, like back 20 years ago, even, I mean, there was like not even that many records coming out a week. Yeah. For like, sure. That's just what like house music. It's like, yeah. Were, was there people in Vancouver that were, informing your musical taste at that point like was there other djs that you remember being inspired by what you were hearing yeah um actually uh i mean when i was when i first got to vancouver when i was like in my teens still um it was kind of the end of the high energy era okay and so at the gandhi dancer of course lots of um music you know it was kind of like the the end of high energy, the beginning of like Stocky and Waterman, and like, uh, you know, I mean, keep in mind Vancouver is a very white city. Mm. And so it's not like we were, I was getting any like paradise garage schooling by any means, but um, Graceland, thankfully, was. Um, a club at the time that was pretty amazing i think for canada in general and uh, there the djs were fantastic it was like i said acid house had just started in the uk and house and i mean they had like an acid house thursday and then they had like a like this bad boys night tuesday and none of the music was cheesy or top 40. it was like house acid house um and like going harder, like into industrial and early techno. Mm. But I mean, of course me at that point, not being a professional DJ, but still buying records as if I were. Um, yeah, I mean, that opened me up to just a whole new chapter there. I mean, that's when I started really getting into house. Uh, and I mean, if you, know, if you were into club music or UK, I mean, at that point, almost everything I bought was an import. So mm. I mean, getting, um, you know, there were zines and just like you looking through the record shops, it's like you're seeing all this like music all of a sudden. And so, I mean, at that point, there, you know, in Vancouver, also on Pender Street, there were, it was all record shops, hmm. literally for two blocks. Every shop almost was a record shop. Um, wow. And so, 
uh, you know, some of them were like mainstream, like big box shops. Some of them were import shops. Some of them were like weird collector shops. Some of them were more specialized in like rock and roll and punk. Some of them were like, you know, more like club music. A couple of them are really like clubby. And so it's like, I started buying like a lot of records and then started because of, you know, things I'd heard, things I'd bought, reading the labels, um, ordering um, a lot of stuff like that I wasn't finding. And so, you know, it's like these guys at the record shops at that point were like, like, how do you know about this stuff? Um, and I was like, you know, just from reading these like kind of DJ zines that I also would buy at the shops. Mm. Um, and so at that point, like I really, this was probably what, like 1990. Um, and it was pretty much going full circle into just like house. And that was just like my taste. It had nothing to do even with what I was hearing anywhere. I was just going down a rabbit hole. And, you know, again, making all these tapes all the time for people. That kind of led me, like I told you earlier, with this whole situation with celebrities. So, I mean, by the time I started, I got, uh, got my first DJ gig, like in Vancouver in 92. Um, I was very much into house. Um, and so, I mean, for a club like that, like, because Celebrities was like the biggest gay club in Vancouver at that point. And so the music really was quite cheesy if you went there on the weekend. Um, like, you know, you'd hear good stuff, but there was a lot of cheese. Mm. And um, so, I mean, it was a little bit of a, you know, like I said, things happen really quickly, but like, and also it, not that quickly, because it did take, probably a couple, two or three years before they would finally give me like a proper weekend where they would not tell me what I, to play more songs people knew or this and that type of thing. I mean, and at that point also just like getting more into house, things started changing in clubs. And this kind of happened, I think everywhere is like, you know, especially in smaller cities where there were, was less of a scene, it's like, because um, people were getting into this music. And so mm. they started having nights popping up at clubs where it's like DJs would go to the clubs, the whatever club, and be like, look, we want to do a night here. And I mean, clubs at that point, that had never been done. Like clubs were clubs. They right. did the programming, they had their DJs. At that point, clubs even bought the records. It's like at celebrities, right. DJs that went to, worked at celebrities would go to the record store, buy music for the club, the club would pay for it. And the DJ booths had thousands of records in them that were owned by the club. The DJs would never bring their own music. Right, 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 right. I was the only one that was doing this at that point at Celebrities. And then like, you know, going to the record shops all the time, I started meeting like other guys. I mean, Luis Machuca, mm. who is a DJ in Vancouver, uh, was one of the first guys I met. And then Tyler, T-Bone, Stadius. And right. I met those guys in probably like 93, 94. And they, these guys were starting to do parties at other clubs, like house nights. Mm. And um, I mean, they were straight and the, you know, their scenes were pretty much all straight, but like cool scenes. And so, I mean, I was like getting to meet these guys. They'd be like, well, come down and check us out, like check out our night. Mm. And so I would, and of course, I mean, I go there and the music was fantastic and the crowd was fun and cool. And I didn't really care if it was gay or straight or if there were no gays there. Um, and so I started actually working with more and more guys like that. And where then I started joining them and we were like, yeah, let's start a night. Let's go to that club and ask them because, you know, they'd have, he had a six, my Thursday nights of celebrities that they gave me the original chance to do had become popular but they still didn't want to take a chance with like that type of like weird music uh, that nobody knew on a weekend. Then like, you know, Tyler had a real pop on Wednesday night uh, at some real cheesy, awful hetero club in Gastown. But like his Wednesday night was complete, you know, complete opposite crowd of what they usually had. And it was packed. It was called Romper Room. Hmm. And so we started doing parties like, like club nights. And so for the first few years I was DJing, I was pretty much only DJing in straight clubs. And for predominantly straight crowds, um, of course, you know it was pre-rave days, um, uh, but the crowd was very much of the rave mindset. 
you know, or posts like hippie mindset, just a like cool mindset. These are people that are not homophobic. They're not racist. I mean, they're cool people. Yeah. And so, um, you know, from my link with the gay scene, uh, obviously more gays started coming also to these straight clubs and to these nights. Uh, and so that kind of was the beginning of like a real like mixed affair. And this uh, is when, like, this is right around when I arrived in Vancouver, because in those early years when I was there, I mean, there was these really amazing spaces and lounges and even after hours and different clubs where it was quite mixed. And I, even in the beginning, didn't really go to the exclusively gay clubs very often in comparison to other places that were just more... Well, yeah, because that kind of carried over through the 90s. I mean, you know, and it worked both ways because like pre-19... Like, I know we'll get to this, but I mean, I met House of Venus in 95. And pre that, uh, when I was doing these nights with all these other DJs, I mean, we were doing nights at straight clubs that were very mixed. And then we were also doing... Uh, there was an old Vancouver leather bar called um, Shaggy Horse that was on Richard Street. And at one point, I think in the 70s and 80s, the entire thing, ceilings, walls, floors, were shag carpet. That's why it was called the Shaggy Horse. Complete like cruising, like Al Pacino type vibe. And wow. that place, obviously, going into the late 80s and the era of AIDS, had really slowed down and was mm -hmm. quite empty. And so it's like, these cool straight DJs that I know started doing nights at that place. So mm -hmm. it's like, oh, like an old leather bar that's yeah, nobody's going there. So it's like, let's, and then that became kind of like a popular place for mixed parties. Yeah. So it kind of worked in all ways. You know, I mean, of, of course, club owners, they just saw that these nights were busy and they saw cash. They didn't care who was coming. Sure. Um, and yes, I mean, it was kind of like a whole rebirth of uh, scenes. And then, of course, like in 95, when the House of Venus moved to Vancouver, it's like at that point, I was already kind of well on my way. But like I said, predominantly straight uh, stuff that I was doing. And then when they came, I think ha repackaging what, kind of what I was already doing, but having like a group of you know, drag queens and like performers and people and, and uh, really brought out uh, giant more like amount more of the gay scene uh to these types of parties because i mean at the house of venus we kind of continue down that path too of doing a lot of parties at straight clubs but they and were just, completely mixed do you remember how you first connected with the house of venus yeah i mean because we were like i said i was doing these nights and these parties these club nights and whatnot and um somebody told me that these guys from Windsor, Ontario had moved to Vancouver. I had never seen them um, or met them, uh, that they wanted, they were wanted to do parties and were looking for a DJ. Um, and that I was suggested to them. Hmm. And uh, they were, I was told that one of them worked at the secondhand shop on Granville and Robson downstairs. Of course, um, Value Vintage. Yeah and that I was supposed to go by there and introduce myself. And so I went to Value, what was it called? Value Vintage? Value Vintage. I think it was called True Value Vintage. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, True Value Vintage, yeah. Yes. So Michael Venus was working there. And then, so yeah, I went uh, and met him, introduced myself to him. It's kind of funny because the first day I met him, I kind of cr had a crush on him. I was like, ooh, <laughs> And then when I find he's going to be, he's gonna be a, listening to this. My friend at that point, that was one of the people that had moved from, with him to from Windsor. Um, and so, yeah, they were like, yeah, we were doing a party. It's like at this after hours, like at an art gallery. And uh, I mean, it, it came up really fast. I think they were like, it's this weekend or like next weekend. Like it was quick. Uh, and we're looking for a DJ and we'd really like you to play. And uh, it was like, okay, I'll play. Um, I was dating this guy then who was also a DJ, a younger DJ, and I had uh, a couple friends and I was like, so yeah, these people have moved here from Windsor. Like they look really exciting and like they look like freaks like us. And there's like some after hours in Gastown and like, please come with me because I, I have always hated going 
showing up for gigs by myself. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I brought this posse down with me. I had my boyfriend at the time, like, come on, you're going to DJ with me. And like, we showed up at this tiny, high-ceilinged uh, art gallery, and it was this after-hours party. And the, when I arrived there, it was actually packed already. And I had never really seen any of the people that was that were there. They were all were like, it was like New York club kids, like, you know, the place could only hold probably 75 or 100 people. It had a little bit of a loft, so you could split it into two levels. Um, but packed would be like 75. And this place was packed already. And of course, at that point, I, it was like full New York Sound Factory style house. Mm-hmm. And like, so I'm playing this music and because I'd been playing a mostly straight places up until that point I wasn't getting any fierceness from those crowds like at that point I didn't even really know what fierceness was and so this was like the first night that I actually had a dose of that because all of a sudden you know this is at that point all the House of Venus girls were like you know six feet tall taller in heels they were all so skinny so they of course all looked like supermodels um and I mean these girls were doing runway and I mean, just carrying on. And I, I, I was just like, oh my God, like this is everything I want in my life. It's where you're meant to be, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, it, it, I, that became like what, the next 15 years of my life, I, or no, like, yeah, pretty much like 15 years. I mean, that party, that one after hours led to like, you know, let's, we're doing this every weekend. Then they got so popular and then it became such a heat score that it got shut down. And then, um, yeah, I mean, at that point, that's, that's when celebrities was like, oh, you can have any night you want. <laughs> yeah, right? And so it was like, yeah, of course. So I was a Venus, it was like, okay, Saturday nights. Um, and so we took our little uh, circus act to a big giant club. And um, I mean, it lasted for a long time. I mean, until celebrities got shut down. Um, and then we kind of went all over the city until it reopened. And... But yeah, and that really a... changed it. Because that really cha- changed the whole scene in Vancouver. Well, and that's a chapter that I have an involvement with, right? Because I moved to Vancouver in 99 and got involved with the House of Venus pretty much immediately starting, you know, year 2000, 2001, and then I was hosting events. So I don't want to necessarily skip over that part, but that's a part that I, I'm the most familiar with because I was there for a lot of it. So I mean, mean, we can all agree that it's been very well documented. Thank you. True, true. And I, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think we could spend a whole interview talking about that and you and I reminiscing on our shared memories because there were so many incredible moments and times and also just these, like the scale of which I still can't even really wrap my head around that there was, you know, upwards of a thousand people through Sonar Nightclub in Gastown every single Saturday night. When we sure, were working there. I mean, and then, you know, it was like, it was like the club night. And then it's like, because the, the hours in Vancouver are, were so Christian at the time, where clubs had to close at two. And so it was like, you know, there was the club and then the, the after hours. And then like, yeah. then it became like the you know, Saturday night club, Saturday night after hours, and then Sunday nights. And yeah. I mean, at that point, yeah, I mean, we were really going strong. I mean, yeah. it was so much fun, of course, you know. Yeah. And I mean, again, at that point, it was so mixed, you know, because even with like, uh, with the whole Venus situation, I mean, it was kind of like, it just kind of flipped and reversed what I had been doing before, where it was like mixed, but predominantly straight. And then after the whole, having the whole thing put together with the amount of people, because we, we had like a miniature army of entertainers at that point. Sure. And like, yeah, people couldn't figure out who was like, uh, like a drag queen, who was a girl, who was trans, yeah. who, you know, and I mean, for Vancouver being such a, a white city, also we had really a fantastic array of, you know, Asian people, black people, uh, we really had everybody involved. Yeah. I mean, these are days where it's like you weren't pressured to have everybody involved. We naturally had everybody involved. Yeah. Um, and so I really, when I'm looking back at those times, I mean, I talk to people about this often and like Honey and I have this conversation. And I mean, it's just, I mean, when you come from that background where it's always been natural 
to have such a mix around you yeah. with friends and people you work with, it really just seems so awful nowadays when you think that people actually feel that they have to at least present their company or their club or whatever to be that way, that it doesn't, because it really at the end of the day is really sad that it just doesn't come naturally to everybody. Totally. I mean, totally. You know, look at back then we had as many girl DJs as we did everyone else. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had Leanne and Renee and uh, I mean, you were like, very early yeah. supporters of Honey's career. I mean, Honey Dijon was coming to Vancouver yeah. often, often. But like I mean, out of the rotating roster at the time of like our Zavina, our House of Venus DJs, I mean, I think <laughs> without even trying at all, it was like, like the the perfect numbered mix of like straight, gay, uh, you know, black, white, Asian uh, girls, guys everything in between and I mean that's just how we rolled yeah yeah and um and so and things sort of tapered I mean I don't really ever remember for any of us you know there being like a moment when um when things sort of like ended but I definitely remember as things kind of moved into the 2000s that nightlife in Vancouver just seemed to get that was a very depressing time. I mean, the first nail in the coffin for us was when celebrities closed because the city shut them down because the building was dilapidated. So, I mean, we literally showed up there one day and they saw a note on the door saying this building has been closed by the city. Um, so that kind of sent us into a bit of a spiral because at that point there wasn't a lot of options for clubs that size. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, we did land on our feet because then we had the Sonar era and the Shine era. Um, but I think when I look back at it all, the early 2000s music really changed and the younger people that were starting to come out at that point were really focused on like top 40 for some reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, celebrities after being shut for three or four years reopened they like renovated the building and brought it up to code. And then of course it reopened and we went back there and it was never the same. I mean, it was yeah. super clinical from like a working standpoint. Um, it was very like, yes, we're a nightclub, but it's all about customer service. Um, and so it was like one person would complain that they didn't know what song was playing. And all of a sudden it was be like a week long lecture, but how every song has to be a song that people have heard on TV. <laughs> it's like this type of nonsense, right? It was just like, oh boy. Wow. Um, so between that and just like the crowds at that point were really changing. And I mean, I remember I would, I got to the point where I was actually scared to go to work and I would have to take like, like Xanax or something before I would go. Uh, because I knew I would get harassed for not having enough like top 40 music. I guess it was like, you know, at that time, it was like really, in, Nor in North America at least, like a real resurgence of pop music because it was like post 90s. So it was like, you know, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera and pop music was really being crammed down everybody's throats. It really became super, super popular. And so at that point, it was like, if you were, DJing at a club in Vancouver, especially like the city's largest gay club. And I mean, you're not playing Britney Spears, like prepare for the wrath. I had a lot of problems about that. And it got to the point where, like I said, I was scared to go to play. Like people telling me off at the club, like your music sucks. And like, I don't know this song. And, and so I just really, I mean, at that point, I you know, we were making great money, but it was, I always said I would never DJ just for money. I mean, that's kind of like been the downfall of my life, isn't it? Because I've always said I would never do anything just for money. True. <laughs> well, well, in this world, it's not the way it works. So, I mean, we did hang on for a while there. Um, but, I mean, you know, things just didn't, just wasn't happening. I mean, we tried and we tried. And at that point, Michael Venus you know, wasn't just promoting club nights. He was actually working for celebrities, promoting celebrities only as yeah. like an in-house club promoter. And I mean, with the things that were going on there and just like the t changing of the music scene and stuff like this, a lot of venues in Vancouver at the time also were closing. Mm -hmm. And the city wanted to move everything to Granville Street and con consolidate it into an entertainment district, which never works in any city. Yeah.
uh, because it just became like a danger zone of like, you know, suburban pickup trucks driving in for the weekend. Uh, you know, yeah, I remember being down there even a few years ago or maybe within the last, I mean, I can't remember the last time I was on Gravel Street, but I remember being down there on a weekend uh, and it sort of had a miniature vibe of being on like the Las Vegas strip or something. And just that energy of like lots of really intoxicated people in big groups and all crammed into sort of one place. Um, it's really, it, it's, it's actually, you feel quite unsafe. Um, yeah, so, no, I always feel very unsafe there. I mean, when I see people pushing over mailboxes to have a good time in downtown of a city on a Saturday night, I know I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> so you you relocated to Berlin. You were an yeah. early you were an early arrival, even way prior to the more recent, um, more massive arrival of people. Who well, I mean, it's funny because I'm actually a late arrival myself. It's like really, um, but yeah, I mean, I think around 2007 in Vancouver. At that point, at that point, I knew like this. There's no future here for me unless it's at least to do with music and entertainment and DJing. And so I, um, you know, coming, having grown up in Germany and having a German dad, I had my German passport. And so I decided to, yeah, I'm going to move. Like I'd rather move and keep doing what I'm doing than stay here and have to really change. Hmm. Yeah. Or a teacher or something. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I left and came here in 2010. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's obviously been a struggle in many ways, like everything is always and relocating halfway around the world. It's never goes as smoothly as anybody can plan. Um, but it, it's, I never for a second have regretted it. It completely reawakened me creatively. Hmm. It, uh, I mean, it added on you know, so far another 10 years to uh, my music and DJing career. Yeah. I think it's helped me a lot as, uh, you know, being a producer, uh, which, you know, as sad as it is, um, I think, I mean, I've released so much more music since being here. And I think that, you know, just the thing of uh, oh, a producer from Berlin. I mean, yeah. and again, as simple as that is, the cachet of that um, is just something that humans do, um, you know, for the same reason that when you, still to this day, it's like, you know, most guest DJs at clubs in smaller cities and, and also in bigger cities are, uh, you know, they're only from so many cities. It's like yeah. Vicky Duke in Vancouver is not playing in Ibiza. You know, there's always been that word. It's like, and this is, you know, for actors and for musicians. And hey, wherever you're from is not going to be, you know, the it's always going to be where you're from. You. Yeah. But I mean, you know, like with, especially in the DJ world, it was just like, yeah, I mean, sometimes do I think to myself, do I wish I would have come to a big city that has a big name attached to it to have given myself you know, extra push earlier? Yes. Uh, do I wish that, but at the same time, then I would have missed uh, all of the fabulous uh, times I had in Vancouver. I think sure. I could have probably left five years earlier than I did. Yeah. Uh, but whatever, it took time. And um, yeah, I, like I said, I mean, I think it's it's really, it really reawoke me musically. Um, having no pressure to play a certain way here uh, really makes you figure out what you want to play. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it really brought back my love for music, you know, obviously mostly for house. I mean, there was a great rock and roll scene and punk scene here when I moved here. So for the first time in my life, other than like a handful of times in Vancouver when we would do our uh, parties at the penthouse, um, I got to, actually for the first few years I was in Berlin was playing a lot of punk rock because there's so many rock and roll and punk rock bars. So I mean, you know, Friday night playing surf punk at a little punk rock bar where people know, actually know this obscure music. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you're playing blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe you have even know or heard of this. Yeah. And so all that type of stuff, you know, and I mean, that goes even with like club music here. I mean, I've met so many people. I, I always get this kind of rhetoric from like a lot of people in North America where it's like, well, you can't expect like someone of a certain age to know 
And it's like, well, there's this thing called the internet. And, uh, and not only that, but in the 10 years I've been in Germany, the amount of 20 year olds or 25 year olds that I know that can actually keep up a conversation with me about like Italo disco uh, or disco, I mean, there's no excuse. It's like, um, so I mean, that also, it's given me a lot of hope. I'm like, wow, there actually is a lot of cool young people that don't rely on corporate media to feed them what they should like as far true. as entertainment goes. What a joy, Richard. Uh, I hope that people are going to seek out some of your mixes. There's one that I'm going to plug. And then while I'm plugging it, you can tell people where you might want them to find you. You did a DJ set for Kootenai House Vibes Radio. Mm -hmm. yeah. That is one of the most delicious disco sets I've listened to in quite some time, Richard. So thank you for that one. Where, um, where, where do you want people to, to find you or track you down out on the internet? Well, I mean, for DJ sets, all my DJ sets are on Mixcloud under Dickie Doo. Um, I have a new one that I just put up a few weeks ago. It's another, uh, it's a summer uh, disco, mostly disco. And it's kind of like that Kootenai's one. I mean, when I say disco, it's also like weird disco. You're not going to hear YMCA. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then for music, uh, I'm everywhere. It's like... Um, Sometimes it's Dicky Do, sometimes it's just Dicky, and sometimes it's DJ Dicky Do. So unfortunately, it's like stuff split up, and you have to actually put those things in to find most of it. But Beatport, Track Source, iTunes, Spotify. Um, I have uh, I, I, a new single coming out this fall with Jimmy Sia Bennett again of Sounds of Blackness, and this one's actually with Sounds of Blackness. Brilliant. Uh, full, like, late disco verging on high energy space disco like peak hour dance floor number with uh, a couple twist uh, but all that stuff will be yeah it's like i said available pretty much anywhere anybody goes to listen to or buy music amazing and i will link to that single once it becomes available so stay tuned everybody thank Thanks, you richard I hope you enjoyed my chat with Tiki as much as I did. I had a very difficult time stifling laughter throughout some of his stories. Uh, I hope they put a smile on your face as well and maybe brought back memories of some of the wilder times in your life. This month, as of October 2021, we launch new fall exhibitions at our centre in Montreal's Mile X neighbourhood. We open for our Saturday open house beginning October 16th, and you can find out more information on any of our social channels, uh, as well as on our website, neverapart.com. Be sure to leave a comment or review on whichever platform you're listening through, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, and you can find me on Instagram at Jordan King Archive. 